the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 73 of Magic Markets and we're really excited tonight. We're joined again by the team from Westbrook and every time we do this we get to meet someone new which is awesome and tonight it's James Lightbody from the Venture Capital team and then Dino whose surname could be Lightbody after doing the Cape Epic and you know some other pretty serious fitness pursuits but uh, that's not actually his surname, it's Dino Zuccolo as many of you have come to meet him and uh, Mo as always welcome to the show and then we'll chat to our Westbrook guests and welcome them. It's always a pleasure and, and super excited about having the team from Westbrook back on again because we, we get to talk to you guys and pick your brains about the really exciting stuff that's outside of listed markets. And I think our topic for today is something that I think would be of, of immense interest to our listeners, to our subscribers as well, uh, and that would be venture capital. So I think James, Dino, welcome to Magic Markets. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, thanks, guys. So, James, I'll jump straight in because venture capital is just super, super interesting. So, people hear this term, but they don't necessarily know what it actually really means. You know, they read about it here and there. In your words, you know, what is venture capital? And most importantly, perhaps, why has it actually become so important? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, and sort of, as the name implies, uh, venture capital is the funding of a new venture from inception all the way to nowadays a very large business. Typically, sort of venture capitalists will fund sort of a business that's entering um, an industry and with a new business model or brand new product. And in that way, sort of venture capital is an inherent bet that the future is going to be different uh, from the present. And uh, I guess to to take on your point of why it's got so big recently, there's sort of various reasons for this. um, But I think two key ones are, number one, uh, sort of the growth in software uh, startups and businesses. And number two, sort of the improvement in the, the chips that, that power the software companies. 
So just to go into to, to both of those a little bit, software companies are perfect for venture capital's business model, mainly because uh, at the start, they require very little capital to get going to sort of build the proof of concept. And then when they do get going, um, they can get very big very quickly by leveraging sort of uh, networks like the internet and things like that. And that's perfect for venture capital's business model that relies on taking lots of small bets, but then they need some of those to pay off um, in a very big way in order to, to sort of generate the returns that they generate. So sort of the growth of software companies has really fueled the boom in venture capital. And then also just sort of the, the actual chips, uh, just to talk to those um, underneath them, uh, software runs on, on sort of the, the semiconductor chips. And sort of as more software companies have grown, so the, the manufacturers of the chips have a strong incentive to make them more and more powerful, often termed sort of Moore's law. And as those chips have got more powerful, they've unlocked more software companies being able to be built, and then the chips get more powerful, um, etc. So kind of a positive feedback loop that, that goes on and on. James, lots of tech in there. And it's a pity because we've come here tonight to pitch you a fast-growing subscription-based podcast. Very exciting. All the rage these days. Uh, very <laughs> modest valuation. Only 300 times forward revenue. You know, I'm, I'm sure you guys will make a lot of money from that. No, I'm kidding, obviously. But uh, that is very interesting. As someone I, I used to work with in a previous life in investment banking is very involved in startups these days. And he said something quite profound to me. Uh, when I started the finance ghost, he said, you know, a startup is a business that solves a problem, which is very different to just a small business or self-employment or you know, with the greatest of respect to all entrepreneurs, you know, an SME that follows a very similar business model, like a restaurant, for example. Restaurants are restaurants are restaurants. It's a super tough business and massive respect to anyone who makes it work. But a restaurant is unlikely to change the world, you know, unless it's the next McDonald's that does something completely different. And I guess that's what sets startups apart. And that's where venture capital plays. You're looking for businesses that actually solve a problem and really change something, an industry, a market, whatever it is. Agreed, generally. And I guess the, the industry parlance for that is that they must be able to scale. It's really that they must be able to get very large, just replicate that solution over and over again, such that you know they can have a big exit at the end of sale and then make lots of money for the venture capitalists. I think you know we, we're certainly getting into underlying investments. I think that's exciting. It's really you know why venture capital has been supercharged. But I think for a lot of our listeners, we did actually cover something on venture capital on Magic Markets, but it was more orientated around the 12J sort of space. Now, why I want to go there is that I think it's very important for us to unpack where Westbrook comes from. You know, 12J was this very popular tax incentive in South Africa. Uh, and that's what a lot of people who aren't familiar with venture capital associate with venture capital down in South Africa. And that's fundamentally different to the type of venture capital, James, that you're talking about. It's fundamentally different to the type of VC operations that you're seeing in Silicon Valley. And so maybe, I mean, do you want to come and bring you into this conversation here? I mean, Westbrook has been in this space for, for quite some time. How is what we're talking about today different yeah, Mo, so Section 12J was fundamentally different to the kind of venture capital company investing that we're talking about with James tonight. In, in South Africa, the word venture capital company was sort of the title of the legislation next to Section 12J. But it was only the title of the legislation, in my belief, because our law here in South Africa was based on a similar set of rules out of the UK called the Venture Capital Trust Rules. So in South Africa, we took the VCT or the Venture Capital Trust Rules, and we called them the Venture Capital Company Rules, Section 12J. Um, and then what followed from that was our legislation. Our legislation, Mo, was a little bit different. I think in South Africa, it was designed a little bit more around building SMEs and creating jobs. So 
really a lot of the money in Section 12J went to small businesses, I'd say, but in industries where the underlying assets weren't necessarily as risky. So you saw a lot of money going into hotels, you saw a lot of money going into asset rentals, solar, etc. Those kinds of businesses are great to grow, you know, put money into grow small businesses, and they are great to create jobs, but they certainly aren't in this philosophical world of solving big problems in large addressable markets with a focus on tech. And so we're in Section 12J, we were partnering with small businesses in South Africa that we thought could provide our clients with a nice risk-adjusted return. What we've done as Westbrook in the offshore world of venture capital is we've followed a slightly different path. What we've done in, in venture capital is we've always partnered with a single partner who, you know, some, some will say is one of Europe's best investors, a guy by the name of Errol Damlin. Uh, Errol is well known to our group and has been from 20, 30 years ago. And he has invested, well, after founding a very well-known fintech company here in South Africa that also had a big presence in the UK and growing that out to a business of well north of a billion dollars, which is a unicorn, as James will talk to you about, no doubt. Uh, he moved over to the UK, where he's now based, and has successfully invested in over 70 venture capital startups around the world. And really what we do is we play a role of uh, originating partner and funder alongside Errol into some fascinating, fascinating investments. We've done more than 35 of them since 2018. Uh, and we're very proud that one of our portfolio has already achieved that uh, rarefied unicorn status of, uh, of an exit valuation of north of a billion. Yeah, that unicorn status is almost as rare as a ghost, eh, mate? Yeah, it's, it's why it's so important that when you're looking at VC, and that's why I'm glad this conversation is going towards the, the kind of global definition of VC, there's so much action that's happening outside of South Africa. You know, you don't hear much about traditional venture capital in South Africa. Uh, you know, I want to maybe bring James in here and say, you know, James, you're sitting out there in London. Dino's already indicated to us that you co-invest with substantial investors out in London. What does that London ecosystem look like? Is it just London that you're operating in? You know, how does Westbrook play into, for example, Silicon Valley? Uh, what about Asia? You know, lots of opportunities coming out of there. Maybe talk to us a bit about Westbrook's involvement globally and, you know, where you're seeing the action. Yeah, so to date, uh, Westbrook has really invested uh, very early um, on in companies' lives. Maybe we can touch on that a little bit in, in a bit, but we typically invest when the companies are just being formed. And typically those are in London uh, and in Israel and uh, other parts of Europe. But as soon as companies hit scale uh, almost anywhere in the world, they typically look uh, across the, the Atlantic to America, where the biggest market is, the biggest buying power, the biggest, most forward thinkers, so to, to grow. Because if you kind of make it there, then the, the sky's the limit. So typically, um, uh, Errol has connections um, at all the major funds. Um, and while we'll do the early investment, typically those other funds will do the later rounds of investing. Um, so sort of having relationships with those other funds, etc., is is important. Yeah, I just want to jump in there as well, James. I think, you know, one of the things around venture capital investing that's crucial is, is relationships. You know, when you're a small business, and, and Ghost, you and I have actually discussed this offline before, you, you don't... You don't just take money from anyone. I mean, clearly, the person who's going to be the seed investor in your business is going to be a key partner to you for hopefully what will be the long and successful journey in your business. And it is important that you find someone who is like-minded and who is culturally compatible and who can provide you with guidance and oversight and so on. And so 
I think one of the key elements of what we try to do is find originating partners and operate in markets where those relationships are held. And that allows you to get in early. And getting in early obviously gives you the biggest potential for return into the future. At a later stage, the Sequoias, the Adresen Horowitzes of the world will come in and participate in the big rounds. And then it's very difficult to compete. But where the secret source can come from is by getting in early and having those relationships that others don't. Yeah, absolutely. That's the edge for so many venture capitalists. And that's also part of why it's hard in South Africa, I think, you know, that and to make it big from South Africa, you have to scale overseas. I mean, the engagements I've had with venture capitalists down here, it's all about, okay, that's a cool business. That's very cute. Nice market in Joburg and Cape Town. And uh, how's it going in London? Or for that matter, how's it going with rolling this out basically to gazillions of people in Africa? That's the other discussion point, obviously, you know, where people are building emerging market focused stuff. You know, it's really interesting. You're so right. I mean, there's like, there's like a couple simple boxes that have got to be ticked, right? The first is that you've got to have a problem that you can solve. Second is you've got to have a big addressable market that you can target. And then thirdly, you've got to operate in a jurisdiction where the capital taps are open. And I think whilst the problems that can be solved here in, in the southern tip of Africa, the second two points are more challenging, right? Which is that we've got a very limited addressable market here in South Africa. And now you can either move into the developed world or into Africa or your other option um, is to move into, you know, actually operating in a place like the US and Europe where you can then bring capital in from there. Um, you know, save from that, it's it's a very tough and challenging road. That's not to mean that there, or to say that there isn't a venture capital ecosystem here in South Africa. It's just, it's quite nascent when one compares it to what's going on in places like Silicon Valley and, and London and so on. And total addressable market is a concept you find in growth investing, which is something we talk about obviously quite often, you know, at, at an extreme, it almost sounds like a Kathy Wood arc paper. And funnily enough, what we've seen in the listed market in that space actually leads me to the next point, which is around risk. Because in the listed market, and specifically in the US, there are a bunch of listed companies that actually are still startups to a very large extent. They are figuring out their place in the world. They are figuring out their monetization models. They are still hiring like mad. Their margins are anything but uh, you know, mature. No one's quite sure how it's gonna end up. And those things are incredibly volatile, which is what scares off growth investors. It hurts them. It, it really hits them in a market like this where yields are starting to rise. And that's almost like a listed playbook of what actually goes on in the background, I think, in some of these venture capital investments, but you just can't see it because they're not marked to market every day. You know, whereas in the listed space, obviously everyone can mark your homework every single day when they see what happens to the share price. So uh, James, maybe there's a question for you, you know, sitting there closer to the investments, how do you manage risk in a portfolio like this? How do you think about volatility and everything that goes with that? I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. It comes to sort of the, the core business model uh, of venture, which is the assumption that at least 80% of the investments in the very early stages will be worth zero at the end. And it's the 20% that will be worth many multiples of how much you invested initially. Um, this is sometimes termed sort of the, the power law of investing, where the that's the distribution as opposed to sort of a, a standard private equity type distribution where you expect most of the investments to, to do relatively well. The point of that um, really is that if, if most of them are going to fail, the volatility matters less because you're going to have some that are, whether it's sort of uh, a billion because markets are, are, are sort of mediocre or it's two billion because they're very hot. If you only put in sort of a few million into the company, it doesn't sort of matter all that much. Uh, so sort of the, the general view of, of the venture capital industry is that you're betting on a 
different future. And if that future materializes, then um, your, your gain will be so substantial that volatility doesn't matter as much. But I mean, the, the, the second point to add there is that sort of um, a portfolio of investments is, is key, sort of diversification um, is the name of the game. You would never see a venture capitalist sort of making one or two investments in a, in a fund and that's it, because then sort of you're almost just gambling. Um, they really do sort of 30 or so to, to make sure they get the best shot. And the other thing goes to your earlier point that I think is quite interesting is you, you made the comment around watching some of these listed companies, which are effectively startups and figuring it out. I mean, I think there's, there's like two reasons primarily that one would list. The first is when you're young and you, you list as a genuine capital raising mechanism because you want to gain exposure, you want to gain you know some level of a corporate profile and then bring capital your way. And that's sort of what you're referring to earlier. The second, and I would argue at the moment, the more prevalent is as an exit mechanism where a business is big and a business is successful and it lists in order to effectively allow some of the earlier investors to sell down. And the reason I bring this up, and it's quite an important concept for clients looking to come into venture capital, is that what we're seeing as a trend uh, globally is that companies are staying private for longer. And so what they're doing is they're waiting to bring their companies to market and to allow, call it the more retail public to invest. They're waiting longer and longer so that the companies can grow and nurture and mature for a longer time, therefore having a bigger valuation at the stage of exit. Now, the problem, of course, then in terms of how does one access venture capital is that if you're coming into a more developed listed company through your NASDAQs or whatever it might be, there's a very good chance that you're coming to bite at a cherry that's already been pretty much eaten. Yeah, I think that's absolutely key because it, it almost links into my, my next point. So I, I want to touch on two things. One, James was talking about the portfolio effect. And when you look at funds in this VC space, and I've looked at Westbrook's funds as well, your, your targeted return is between 2x and 5x your investment, right? Uh, if you say 80% could likely go to zero, it's the 80-20 rule. That means on your 20, you're looking at anywhere from a minimum 10x to 50x return. And I think that highlights where in the risk spectrum something like VC actually stands for an investor. I was going to shout at me for this analogy, but in the world of investing, this is a bit like Tinder. You swipe right a lot. And if you're lucky, you find your life partner in the process after a lot of bad dates. It's actually not different. That's how power law works. That's the best analogy I can think of for power law is only one or two need to work out. Well, one if it's ideally if it's uh, if it's dating. But, you know, in the world of investing, it's a couple. But that's the principle. And the problem with venture capital, there is no Tinder. You've got to be out there you know, meeting these entrepreneurs. You can't do it on your phone by just swiping and hoping for the best. It's not easy. <laughs> no, you, you definitely can't. I guess one, one other point to add to the power law is that actual the returns of uh, venture capital funds also has a power law distribution. So you do have sort of the same funds and only a few of them doing really, really well. And like the vast majority actually only sort of return one times or even less. So it's actually a space where the top investors keep on doing very, very well over time. And as to Dino's point, we're sort of trusted partners actually adding value. So there really is a competitive advantage. Um, so it's key to be in the right kind of funds. Yeah, before before I let ghost Tinder Swindler <laughs> analogy to derail my, my second part of my question, where, where I wanted to go with that, is that we understand where in the risk profile from an investor perspective this, this stands. I also want to understand from Westbrook's perspective, where in the investment life cycle do you guys participate? Because there are lots of bites on the cherry. Dino actually said that you don't want to get the last bite on the cherry. 
uh, in VC, there's pre-seed, there's seed. And then as you move towards listing, you know, you get your series A, your series B. Also to Dino's point, I want to understand this. I want to say, you know, if companies are delaying their listing for much longer, does that mean that investments in a VC fund could potentially migrate into some of the private equity universe rather than listing being your exit? So just in terms of these stages where uh, Westbrook invests, um, just to talk to, I mean, pre-seed typically, I mean, there's no, I mean, the, the sort of actual names of the rounds change, what have you, but typically to generalize pre-seed is where there's, there's a founder with literally a slide deck, an idea, he has no product, no nothing. And so we, we often invest um, with our current funds at that stage, literally before there's even a, um, a proof of concept or anything. And then seed typically is, is, is when there is a proof of concept, but like very low, um, very little limited traction. And we'll also invest quite a bit there. Series A typically is where companies do have some traction, traction in the form of either they have a lot of um, even, even free customers showing that it's working or they've got some revenue or they've made, met some kind of scientific benchmark. Um, and when you have traction, you've got a real business there. And that's where Series A, the rounds get quite a lot bigger from Series A. Um, and then Series B is sort of a, a repetition where you're investing in new markets and, and things like that or a new product. Um, and then sort of to, to follow into your, your uh, second part of the, the question there, um, you are definitely seeing sort of private equity uh, coming. When you get to Series D and E, you see the big asset managers, you see the private equity funds, KKR, Carlyle, the big hedge funds, Tiger Global, they're all, they're all sort of participating in the, in the later funding rounds. And it really is becoming almost like uh, investors that would normally invest in listed companies are actually just investing in, in private companies. So you could well see like an exit um, at that point uh, or, or we'll wait until the final exit, but definitely a two-pronged exit approach now. From an investor perspective, guys, I think it's important to point out that the differences in where you play in from a funding round perspective can be fundamental i mean just to give like a simple analogy if you invest in a business that when you first come in you get you pay fifty thousand dollars for and you get fifty percent of the shop when that business grows to ten million dollars you know for its next funding round and then a hundred million dollars and then a billion dollars thereafter you're in a fundamentally different world in terms of a few things. The first is what your expected returns are because to go from $100,000 to a million dollars is 10x, right? But to go from $100 million to a billion dollars is the same thing, but actually it's a lot more growth required, right? So the reason I raise this is that oftentimes as an allocator into venture capital, you have different kinds of clients who sit in different funds that are looking for different things. Some of your clients want the super early stage angel style investing, where you're really coming in with nothing more than a minimum viable product. Those investors are targeting the absolute largest returns they can. And they're looking for multiples of their money over probably quite a long time horizon. That's sort of seven to 10 years plus. What we do at Westbrook is we cater for both. So we've got two funds, one raised in 2018 and one raised in 2020 that invest in that. And then what we're in the process of launching to market at the moment is a later stage investment focused fund. So a fund that now is looking to participate in some of the, the bigger funding rounds when businesses are larger and they're valued at more. Um, and in that instance, you know, your return expectations are lower, but one can argue that the risk is lower too. So different horses for different courses. And it's very important to understand the nuances of both. 
Yeah, those early stage IRRs is exactly why I tried to pitch you an excellent podcast earlier with a growing subscriber base. And I mean, we cover US companies. How much more scalable do you want? Do you know? I don't know how else to sell this to you and I'm trying my best. You know, Ghost, I think it's a great sell until you show me the, the valuation, which I think... Uh, you probably would have, would have put some more reasonable valuations together on Magic Markets podcasts of, of, of gone by. You know, we, we, we joke, but there's so much truth in all the... <laughs> but genuinely, like when we talk about growth stocks on the market and people go, oh, those valuations are insane. Those multiples are insane. And it's because the people in question are pricing in the growth they so strongly believe in, you know, as Mo and I do. I mean, our, our trailing multiple would look absolutely ridiculous to bring an outside investor. Well, and that's how this works. It's very hard to put a multiple on a growth, on a business that's growing really quickly, right? Because a ridiculous multiple this year, if you actually do grow, becomes a very reasonable multiple the next year. So one must almost question the valuation methodologies at, like, at that point in, in a business's life cycle. Yeah, trailing multiples on venture capital, not so helpful. You need to do like a five-year view and then bring it back at the rate that you're happy to earn on this thing. So, you know, without getting into too much of the technical valuation stuff, which is always really interesting, I, I think one of the questions we need to ask before we wrap this up is, you know, for investors who want to get in on this action, you know, who want to put their money with you guys, you get pitched great businesses like up-and-coming podcasts and some other stuff that's actually really exciting and, and big and offshore and awesome. How do they gain access to this asset class through Westbrook? I think a few points here. The first is James has spoken around the importance of portfolio in venture capital investing. But to go a level above, the importance of portfolio in investing in general is is absolutely significant, right? So I don't think anyone by any stretch of the imagination is advocating allocating a very large element of your overall investment portfolio to venture. Venture plays a role, I would argue, in almost everybody's portfolio, but to different percentages, and they're generally smaller because the risk is higher and the potential for higher returns is, is bigger. That being said, the difficulty for a South African is, is how on earth do you access the venture capital startup that is currently being incubated somewhere in Europe or London or Israel? It's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And then once you've accessed it, how do you invest with a, small, a reasonable enough amount of money that uh, allows you to get a bite at the cherry, but perhaps not fund the entire thing. And we've spoken about this before, but that's really our mission as Westbrook is to provide a South African client with exposure to things that historically only the billionaires of this country were able to do. So our funds, which we've called Westbrook Rhythm, um, are, are focused in, in their entirety in venture capital investing. And, and as I mentioned earlier, different stages sort of of the ecosystem of a startup. And we allow clients to invest into these funds. The funds are inherently diversified from within the VC element of, of the portfolio. And there are much lower minimums in, in these funds than what you would expect if you had to go offshore and try and do it yourself. Um, that being said, it is a tricky world and it is an important world for you to understand deeply what it is that you're investing into. And so the advice that I, that I traditionally give holds true here as much as ever before, which is that if you have a financial advisor, contact them and, and task them with getting hold of us and doing a little bit of the due diligence and how it all works. I'm more than happy to do that. But if you would like to, to gain exposure directly, you're welcome to. I mean, uh, I think by now people know how to get hold of us, westbrook.ca.za. Do you know what are those minimums? I mean, we, we've spoken about a, a whole suite of products with Westbrook over the last several shows, some of your yield products. In the VC space, what are your fund minimums at this point in time? The moment, Mo, they are regu driven by regulation, right? So regulation is still an impediment. And that, this isn't even local in reg regulation. This is Jersey 
regulation, which requires that the minimum sit at $100,000 uh, per investment. Now, if you think about it, actually, if you're coming into a venture capital fund of 20 investments, you're putting $100,000 in, you are not actually putting that much into each company itself. There is a trick here, and that trick is, again, the wealth manager, because we you know, are able to treat wealth managers' clients in aggregate. So if you've got a wealth manager who's acting on behalf of 20 clients, you can kind of, it's the same principle as an investment club. So uh, a, a clever hack for those who are looking to uh, come in for smaller amounts, get hold of someone who manages money and, and, and tell them to give us a shout. Very cool. Uh, Mo doesn't get out of bed for less than a million dollars anyway. So $100,000 is not a... It's not a problem for our man there in Canada. No, I'm just kidding. Guys, thank you. I think we've learned a lot about venture capital tonight. I personally think it's an incredibly cool space. It's something quite different to what we normally talk about, which is very much listed company investments. And it's because it's not that easy to get access to, but that's a gap that you guys fill so well. And it's not for everyone. I think you've made that point. Um, it is risky, but it is also very exciting. So it's just another wonderful investment tool to understand. You know, it's another weapon in your wealth creation journey. And uh, those who are interested should definitely go check out the website. You know, reach out to Dino on Twitter or wherever. James, I'm not sure how available you are on social media or if you're too busy running around <laughs> sourcing deals in, uh, in London. I'm also, I'm also on Twitter. But either way, people know where to find you. Oh, there we go. James is also on Twitter. So go find James Lightbody on Twitter and chat to him about venture capital. And uh, yeah, reach out to the guys. And I think that's all we have time for this week. Mo, we'll do this again next week. Yeah, it's great. Guys, thanks for being on the show. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this. Until next week, same time, same place. That's Magic Markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.